This is Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and this is the New Hampshire News Recap. We're getting into the week's top headlines. How much should the state pay to provide an adequate education for New Hampshire students? That's the central question in a lawsuit brought forth by school districts against the state. New Hampshire Bulletin's Ethan DeWitt and the Boston Globe's Amanda Goki join me now to talk more about the latest lawsuit challenging the state's model for funding public education. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Ethan, I'm going to start with you. Department of Education Commissioner Frank Edelblue testified in this case this week. What did he have to say? Well, essentially what he had to say is that the decision over how much the state should pay school districts is not up to him, and it's not up to the Department of Education. Um, and as you noted, Rick, the this case is all about how much the state should pay to schools. Um, as you, as listeners may know, the 1992 Supreme state Supreme Court decision, the Claremont One decision, established that there is a requirement that the state provide an adequate education. But the amount that that adequate education translates into in dollars has never been defined in a courtroom. In fact, the Supreme Court in the past has told the legislature to come up with that. So this particular trial is about whether a court should determine an actual number there. Right now, it's about $3,800 per student for the base adequacy. Um, The plaintiffs here, which are about 10 school districts, say that that should be about two and a half times more than that, closer to $10,000 per student, once you factor in a number of other expenses that they say are not being factored in, such as transportation, uh, student-to-teacher ratios, um, nursing, Etc. So on yeah. the stand, Commissioner Edelblut was being asked, what do you think? And time after time, he said, it's not up to me, it's up to the legislature. So the takeaway is that this is going to make it that much more difficult for this judge, should he decide to side with the plaintiffs, the school districts, to come out with a actual number if he decides to do that. Well, let's um, talk Let's talk a little bit more about how much the state has been spending on public education. There's a study released this week that shows the cost of, of public education has gone up by a billion dollars over the past 20 years, even as school enrollment has decreased. Amanda, tell us more about that, that report's findings. Sure. So the report looked at official state data from 2001 to 2019, And it found that state spending on education was up a billion dollars, as you mentioned, Rick, and that's after adjusting for inflation. So state spending went from $2.37 billion in 2001 to $3.31 billion in 2019. And the study also found that during that same time frame, student enrollment dropped by 30,000 students. And that's a 40 percent increase in spending and a 14 percent decline in enrollment. So essentially more money for less kids. And another interesting finding of the report is that when you adjust for inflation, the state's contribution actually goes down. So that means it's really local communities that are shouldering the increased cost of education. I know, and critics were saying that this $1 billion is kind of an oversimplification and, and a little bit misleading. And as as uh, Ethan was saying, there, there's other costs involved here that they're saying this is not taking into account. That's right. So critics have noted that that these numbers really gloss over the, the kind of glaring differences in districts. Spending hasn't gone up the same everywhere. And they also say that that schools are recognizing student needs and meeting those needs now in, in a better way than they have in the past. So in 2013 to 2019 alone, there was a 35 percent increase in uh in low-income students and a 10 percent increase in students receiving special education. So there's also data that shows that better serving those students with things like meals and individualized attention really has good outcomes. Now, that study was released on the same day that Edelblue was testifying in this funding case. 
uh, brought by the Conville School District, among others. Uh, Amanda, what were you hearing from critics about that and about the timing of that release? Yeah, so I talked to Jack Sheehan of the School Funding Fairness Project, and he was pretty dismissive of this report. And he called it cover for Edelblue while he was testifying. The implication of this report is, you know, that schools are, are spending more money than they should and, and not really getting good results for that money. Um, and another interesting data point it highlights is how education spending was lower than the national average in 2001, while as of 2019, it was significantly higher. So it's really making the point that New Hampshire spending has outpaced spending in in other states. And Sheehan said that this report doesn't include any new information and really is just a repetition of uh, what he called months-old talking points from the state's Department of Education. Ethan, school districts have been fighting the state over the definition of, a, of an adequate education for decades now, some 30, 30 years. And this lawsuit is just the latest chapter. What are you keeping an eye on as this trial plays out over the next few weeks? Right. So as I mentioned before, this lawsuit <clears throat> in um, its current iteration is kind of all about a number. That's what the plaintiffs want. They want there to be a specific number that is issued by the courts that might indicate how much the state needs to pay per pupil. Um, and so what I'm watching in this trial is we're going to hear a lot more deposition from uh, other people, from the superintendents, from, from education experts, and how the judge kind of interplays with those witnesses will say a lot about whether he's kind of leaning towards uh, issuing that number or whether we might get an, another broad uh, ruling here that that doesn't quite side with what the plaintiffs want. So it'll be really interesting. It's also going to be interesting watching the legislature at the same time address school funding and the budget. Um, there are some proposals to increase them, but they come nowhere close to what the school districts in this lawsuit want. Um, so that'll be interesting to watch as the budget moves along. Okay, so stay tuned as always. It's Morning Edition on NHPR. We're recapping this week's news with the Boston Globe's Amanda Goki and New Hampshire Bulletin's Ethan DeWitt. I want to turn back to you, uh, Amanda. We've seen proposals to ban or restrict gender-affirming care in state houses across the country this legislative session, including here in New Hampshire. Now, Amanda, you spoke with healthcare professionals who are working to fill the gaps in services for transgender people in the state. Can you tell us more about their efforts? Sure. So I spoke with a doctor and a nurse practitioner at Dartmouth's Trans Health Program. They told me that a lot of their work really revolves around counseling and connecting families to resources. So their clinic has a library with books and other informational materials. They field questions about everything from where to find gender-neutral clothing to puberty or even just hairdressers who are understanding. And they also work with parents who aren't necessarily on the same page about how they should proceed with a child's treatment. So they'll engage that parent, they'll help educate them, and identify some of the myths and biases that may be at play. Um, you know, that could be anything ranging from the belief that gender is a binary or that trans children are being very easily influenced by their peers. The providers that I spoke with emphasized just how good of outcomes that they see in the clinic. So they describe children who might be very quiet and withdrawn, becoming more talkative and confident, and they said that's really the most rewarding part of their work. An attempt to ban gender-affirming care for trans kids was defeated here in New Hampshire. How has the introduction of, of that kind of a bill affected healthcare providers and, and trans people that are seeking care? So the short answer is that it has had a really big effect, even though that legislation didn't ultimately succeed. The providers described it to me as just being extremely frustrating or even maddening to have to spend their time at the state house, sort of lobbying against these bills when they really want to be fo focusing their time and energy at the clinic, providing care to children and making the clinic even better. It really takes them away from their sort of primary work and it puts them in an advocacy role that they weren't trained for in medical school. So they both said it's, you know, it's been really 
really hard to be told that trans kids shouldn't exist or and that they've never had to defend someone for for being who they are. So Frances Lim Liberty, she's a, a pediatric endocrinologist, really sees it as a as a double standard. She you know told me she would never have had to defend the use of insulin for a patient with type one diabetes. Now, what are healthcare workers hearing from from patients and, and their families about about access to to gender affirming care, especially now when lawmakers are trying to get involved? So first and foremost, the kids are paying attention to this and they understand that there is a real risk that they could lose access to their care. That really raises a lot of uncertainty for people who are already marginalized. And it can be really terrifying for young people who are left to wonder where would they go if New Hampshire bans this kind of care that can save their lives? And obviously, New Hampshire is not the only state considering this sort of um, proposals. So they know it's a national issue and they are paying close attention. Um, we did also speak about you know, what media coverage can get wrong. Um, and so you can see that full story at bostonglobe.com slash NH. Now, speaking of national trends, leading up to Earth Week, Governor Chris Sununu recently signed an executive order barring officials in the New Hampshire retirement system from investing in funds uh, solely based on, quote, environmental, social and governance criteria, also what's known as ESG investing. Ethan, can you tell us, tell us more about that kind of investing? What, what is it? What does it mean? Sure. So as you noted, um, it's environmental, social and governance criteria for investing. And essentially, it's a framework that um, some investors are increasingly starting to use that looks beyond just a company's fundamentals when investing in a company and also but also looking at their sustainability practices, uh, you know, uh, taking into account climate change, uh, their governance practices, looking at, you know, gender equity that might be on the on the company, um, kind of social policies as well. So it, it's an addition to kind of other tools that investors use already, and it's proven to be controversial um, as more and more investment funds start turning to it. Now, why did Governor Sununu say this executive order was necessary? Sure. So Governor Sununu and uh, many Republicans and conservatives argue that this type of framework for investing is not actually giving the best return on the investment because it's looking at, you know, other factors that aren't traditionally considered uh, or haven't or hadn't been historically traditionally considered as part of investing in a company. The, the people who actually have investment funds that do follow ESG criteria have pushed back on this. They say that Actually, looking ahead at these factors, whether a company has the right model to, uh, you know, transition into the uh, clean energy economy, actually is a good investment strategy that will provide better returns, and that some of these factors, such as gender equity at a company, can really affect how well a company performs down the line. So they argue that it's uh, not actually, you know, that's a, a false distinction. But conservatives say that that the um, retirement system and other funds should be solely based on the rate of return and not on these other factors. Now, these efforts are part of a pushback by Republicans nationally. And as Sununu continues to you know, entertain a run for the presidency in 2024 and court national media, is this just another talking point for him? Well, he was asked this in a press conference last week. He says that it isn't. He says that he's that, you know, this is not just planting his, his, his flag in the sand, as he put it. Um, but it is very convenient as politically for him because ESG has become, as I noted, something that conservatives are paying more and more attention to. And we've seen laws across the country that are also trying to restrict the use of these funds. Um, so, again, how much he talks about it as a potential presidential candidate, we will see. I should note that in the actual executive order that he signed 
Um, it applies to the New Hampshire retirement system, which holds the state employees' retirement uh, pension accounts. And the retirement system has already said that they do not invest in funds that solely use ESG criteria. But again, proponents of ESG say that ESG is being used by many investment uh, asset managers, whether it's the primary or secondary concern, it's just one tool in the toolbox. So they're arguing that taking that off the table actually hinders the ability for investors to react to the future. I mean, what's the likely effect here? What are, what are financial experts saying about that? Well, again, as I said, the the retirement system right now doesn't uh, currently invest. But one thing that Snunu is encouraging, and there's also a bill, in the, um, is to require the retirement system to disclose all the funds that it invests into um, on a regular basis to the legislature and to the governor. And so that may hinder the uh, retirement system uh, and the state treasurer from in, in, from making the kinds of investments that proponents of ESG say are necessary. All right. The Boston Globe's Medigoki and the New Hampshire Bulletin's Ethan DeWitt. I want to thank you both for joining us this morning on The Recap. You can find more of Amanda's work at bostonglobe.com slash NH and more of Ethan's work at newhampshirebulletin.com. Thanks to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a good weekend. We'll be here next Friday with more top headlines. I'm Rick Ganley, and this is NHPR.